That'll do it. Is that better? It may not be better. Just wait and see. Uh, just one quick commercial. Uh, those of you who uh, have uh, heard me before, you know that I love the lands of the Bible. That has been a very big part of my life over the years. Um, all totaled uh, more than 30 trips to the Middle East, the lands of the Bible, Israel, Turkey, Greece, Jordan, Egypt. Um, I have a uh, private tour coming up in, to Turkey and Greece this fall. Uh, there's a brochure like this on the counter in the back. I realize that it's coming up very quickly, but if you have any interest, um, brochures are available for you. Thank you, worship team, for uh, setting the tone uh, for a difficult topic this morning. I want to begin by asking you a question. It's a rhetorical question because I already know the answer to this. But here's the question that I'd like you to think on. Have you ever felt like you were addicted to anger? Have you ever felt like you were addicted to anger, that there was something, some seed, some experience, some person, some circumstance in your life that prompted such a deep emotional response associated with anger that you felt you could not escape from? Again, a rhetorical question, because I know the answer to that. Whether you want to admit it or not, all of us struggle and wrestle with anger. If you've ever been cheated, if you've ever been lied to, if you've ever been stolen from, if someone's ever deceived you, hurt you, or even in a situation such as we have experienced this week, and by the way, this topic was chosen before the events of the week unfolded. Uh, the angry words surrounding the circumstances of Uvalde, our government, a community, law enforcement, God, family members. I made a phone call this week to a good friend of mine. He's a, a pastor, happens to be Mexican. His ministry is in San Antonio. When I called him, he said, can I call you right back? He did. I, I, I called him back um, and texted, uh, just said, call me whenever it's convenient. He was already on the ground in Uvalde with a team of people from his church. He was already meeting with pastors in the community. I can only imagine the deep emotion of anger that some people have felt, are feeling, that have just turned their world upside down today. Well, this morning in the minutes that we have, I'd like us to turn our attention to someone who had an addiction to anger. 
And even if you would say, well, Jim, I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm addicted to anger, but yes, there, there are some angry outbursts or, yeah, Jim, that's just the way that I am. Well, I'm going to save some words for you later on. Because scripture has a lot to say about this subject. The character that we're looking at this morning in the pages of scripture is no stranger to us. Uh, many chapters in the Bible are devoted to his life and his impact. Uh, it's King Saul in the Old Testament. We're eventually going to land in 1 Samuel chapter 20 and take a look at about 10 or 11 verses there. But what I want us to understand or what I'd love for us to walk out the door with this morning is to understand that anger is contagious. And listen, not only is anger contagious, but it's only one letter away from danger. Anger can be very dangerous. We're going to see this unfold vividly in the passage in just a few moments. Now, a bit of background, we don't have time to scour the chapters that precede it, so let me just in a minute give you a summary. In 1 Samuel chapter 10, Israel says, we want a king, and God says, okay, I don't think it's a good idea, but if you want a king, I'll give you a king. So Samuel anoints Saul as the first king of Israel. By 1 Samuel 15, we're into only four chapters later, after 10, we find that Saul has taken it upon himself to uh, impress upon people that he has a better plan than God did. And he becomes disobedient. God clearly gives some instructions. He disobeys. God's not happy. The prophet Samuel is not happy. And God says, bad move, Saul. I'm paraphrasing, of course. And I'm going to remove the kingdom from your lineage. In other words, you're not going to have a son who sits on the throne following you. I'm going to take the kingdom away from your family and give it to another family. And so by chapter 16, we know who the next king is going to be. 1 Samuel 16, the son of Jesse, David, is anointed as the next king of Israel. By the next chapter, 1 Samuel 17, we know that, that passage so well. If you've been a churchgoer, you've been hearing that since nine months before you were born. David and Goliath. David and Goliath, and you know how the story ended. I don't have to recount it for you. It's, it's a morbid ending, but the, the way the chapter ends, and check me out, don't take my word for it, is King David, the, the young teenager who has been anointed as the next king of Israel, is standing in front of King Saul holding the head the head of Goliath, who he has just chopped off after he killed him. Souvenir. By the next chapter, we find that already the tide is turning because people are beginning 
to be very impressed with the exploits of David as a very young leader. And there's something that as Saul returns home, he hears the villagers singing as the armies march with him, and you know what it was. He, he, he says, and he, it's recorded in Scripture, Saul has slain his thousands, but David his, what? Ten thousands, ah. Seeds of anger beginning to take root in Saul. By chapter 18, David is not in good favor with King Saul. Saul has put out the word that he really would like to see David dead. However, he has two complications he has to deal with. Number one, David has been married to one of Saul's daughters, Michal. Not only that, Saul's son, Jonathan, has become best friends with David. But nonetheless, Saul's anger continues to deepen. Saul desperately wants to try to protect his throne, and already we are beginning to uncover one of just a few principles that I'd like to, like to pull out of this passage this morning. And so if you're a note-taker, let me just identify a principle as I give it to you. And the first principle is simply this. Anger always has a root cause. Anger always has a root cause. You can always trace the anger back to a person, a circumstance, or a problem. Psychologists have verified this with uncountable studies, and they say that anger always comes back to a root cause, and 80% of the time, so the psychologists say, it's a person. And problems, most often, are people-related. So 80% of anger involves the actions of other people in a series of events or circumstances or directly is focused and connected to a person. We also know from Scripture, just to lay the foundation, and we'll jump into the verses, that God has a lot to say about anger in the Bible, interestingly. Just in the Old Testament, there are over 600 references to anger and wrath. Divine wrath, human anger, mentioned more than 600 times. It was clearly one of the emotions that God has and consequently that we have because we are created in the image of God with intellect, emotion, and will. However, the complication came with the fall of man. That is, when man sinned, our emotional being also got perverted. Our emotions also were as they were affected by the fall. And so it's no surprise to us that the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4, New Testament passage, he says, in your anger, do not sin. Then he goes on and he says, don't let the sun go down on your wrath while you are still angry. And then he adds this, he says, don't give the devil a foothold. 
Now, just be clear on what Paul's saying. He doesn't say it's a sin to be angry. He doesn't say don't be angry. He says don't let the sun go down on your wrath. He said if you can identify what you're angry about, deal with it. Because it's only going to get worse. And if you don't deal with it, if you don't address it, it opens the door for the devil to stick his foot in and make it worse and miserable for you and others. James, the half-brother of Jesus, writes this in 1 James chapter— or excuse me, 1 James, yeah, that's not in the Bible. Uh, James chapter 1. James chapter 1, James says, dear brothers, take note of this. He said, everyone should be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to become angry or slow to wrath. Okay? Two ears, be quick to hear, slow to speak, one tongue, which we already know. James goes on and he develops that thought, and he says the tongue is the most uncontrolled member of our body. So, the point that I want to make here before we move on and read the passage is that the potential for sin lies more in the expression of anger than it does in the feeling itself. That's where we get in trouble. It's what we do with the anger and how we express it that creates the mess. So here we are, 1 Samuel chapter 20, and I'm going to read 11 verses. I'm going to begin in verse 24. The context here is that David knows that he is a wanted man. He knows that Saul hates him. And Jonathan and Saul had a conversation, and they thought it best for David to not participate and be at the dinner table for the new moon celebration. So David hid himself in the field, verse 24, 1 Samuel 20. He hid himself in the field, and when the moon came, the king sat down to eat food. And the king, the king sat on his seat as at other times, and on the seat by the wall, Jonathan sat opposite. And Abner, that would have been the commander-in-chief of the armies, Abner sat by Saul's side, and David's place was empty, verse 26. Yet Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought, well, something has happened to him, and uh, he is not clean. Surely, surely he's not clean. So, uh, but then the second day, the second day of the new moon, David's place was empty, and Saul said to Jonathan, his son, why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal even yesterday, either yesterday or today? And Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked to leave me to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go to, for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to come and be there. So now, if I've found favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. Verse 30, then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. 
And he said to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do you not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger, ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. Now, we're going to focus on just a handful of principles this morning and refer back to the narrative of the passage. And first, I'd like us to focus on how, how Saul verbalized his anger. Because that's one of the primary ways that anger is demonstrated. When Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan in verse 30, he resorted to five of our favorite ways to abuse someone when we're angry at them. Did you catch them as we read them? Let me renumerate them for you. The first one was that there was name-calling. And he calls him, you son of a perverse and a rebellious woman. Now, I'm not going to paraphrase that, because I think you could imagine how we have shortened that in the English language. Name-calling is one of the first things that an angry person does. Secondly, they make accusations. Don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse? In other words, Jonathan, you think I'm stupid? You think I don't know that you're on Jesse's side instead of my side? Your own father. You picked the side of your brother-in-law and betrayed your own father. I know I'm adding to the text, but you get how the emotion begins to rise when someone begins to verbalize anger. There's a third thing he does. There's false guilt. And he says, to your own shame and the shame of the mother who bore you. In other words, your mama would be ashamed of you if she was here right now. False shame. False guilt. The fourth thing that he does does and says is a half-truth. And he said, as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now, why is that a half-truth? He says, neither you, well, that was wrong because he had no idea what Jonathan's future was, nor your kingdom, and that was right, will be established. 
So he said one thing that was right and one thing that was wrong, and that made it a half-truth. God had already made it clear to Saul that Jonathan was not going to inherit the kingdom. And the surprising thing is, Jonathan was okay with that. Jonathan had no aspiration to become the next king. The fifth thing that Saul does is he makes a demand. And he says, now send him and bring him to me, for he must die. Angry people make demands. Now, there's a principle here that I, again, would like for us to nail down in our thinking. In anger, we often say things which either we can regret or we should regret. In anger, we often say things which we can regret or should regret. You see, when we're speaking out of anger, we're going to make one of the best speeches that we will live to regret. And you and I both, it's common sense to us that the moment something escapes our mouth, we know that those words are not retractable. We know that those are words that are spoken that we can never take back. My apology to any lawyers for this illustration, but lawyers are masterful at this in the courtroom. They'll make a statement there will be an objection to it by the judge or the opposing counsel, and then they will say, um, disregard that comment. It cannot be disregarded once it is out of the mouth and into the ears of the listener. Anger is a condition where the, the tongue works faster than the mind does. And that's why James goes on to write in chapter 3 of his letter that the tongue, not only is it dangerous, but it's unruly. It can't be controlled. Angry people generally respond in one of two ways. They either clam up or they blow up. You ever been around someone that you suspect that they're angry about something and you ask them, are you okay? I'm fine. Are, are you angry about something? No. Why would you think I'm angry? Uh, now, I hear a few uncomfortable snickers, which means that I think I'm on the right track here. I don't think I'm too far off base. Okay, so we have some people that eventually blow up if not immediately, they'll blow up at a later point in time. And all that we have repressed comes out like vomit in such a way that it is it's difficult to hear and it's difficult to override all of the emotion of that moment. Now, again, if I can 
appeal to those in the social sciences who study the emotions of man, they suggest that the temper and anger, this blowing up or clamming up sometimes, is a sign of defeat. In many ways, we would call it a, a temper tantrum. It's something that we're frustrated about because we know there's something that we don't like and we can't fix it. Or many times, we can't get our way. Now, I raised three sons. So those of you who are parents among the audience, you can identify with this very quickly. But, you know, in raising three sons, there was never a time when I ever had to teach my sons how to throw a temper tantrum. You know, I never, I never had to sit my boys down and say, okay, guys, um, today I'm going to throw, I'm, I'm going to show you how to throw an angry fit, okay? First thing you do is you start screaming at the top of your lungs, or you can start to cry. That gets more attention. Then throw yourself on the floor. Then thrash your limbs and pound on something. Never had to teach my sons that. Their mother taught them that. No, I'm just kidding. No, you see, that's part of that fallen nature. That's part of the emotional part of our makeup that has strayed and gone off course because of sin. That's part of what we have to deal with as human beings, learning how to bring that anger under control so that we can experience the emotion of anger and yet not sin. There's a third thing that we learn in this text from King Saul. A third principle is that anger is often the result of a distorted perception. Anger is often the result of a distorted perception. Where do, where do I get that? Well, it, it's a collection of some of the conversation and the narrative of the different chapters because Saul had this distorted perception that David was trying to take the kingdom away from him. And nothing could have been further from the truth. David was loyal to Saul and recognized his authority as the king. And at no time, in no way, did he dishonor David, or did he dishonor King Saul, even when he had opportunity, at least on two occasions, to take the life of King Saul at the council of his fellow soldiers he refused to kill the Lord's anointed. In this case, Saul thought he should still be the king. He disagreed with God. It didn't matter what God had said to him, what God had revealed, what God's word had clearly spoken. His distorted perception was that Jonathan was a traitor a conspirator with David, that his son and his daughter had turned against him and were conspiring with David to steal the throne. Anger is often the result of a distorted perception. 
And so when we are feeling angry, one of the very first things that we need to do is to step back and make sure that we have all of the facts. One of the things that we have learned this week as we have watched the news is that what we thought were facts initially were not facts at all. And consequently, people have constantly felt like their emotions were being jerked around and they experience all new emotions with new information that continues to come forward with regard to that tragedy of the death of 21 people. So what does Saul do to ventilate his anger? Well, we read that in the text. We've seen the verbal abuse. How is that now ventilated physically? Well, uh, the text very clearly says uh, he took his spear and he threw it. Now, throwing things in anger is, again, that comes as no surprise to us. That happens quite frequently. And so the very simple and the obvious principle here is that anger ventilated improperly is often physically harmful. Husbands and wives can be angry at each other, but that is no excuse for physical abuse. Saul intended, clearly in this text, to kill his son by throwing a spear at him. In his rage, he lost his love for his son. I don't have time to go into illustrations. I can only say that years ago, Years ago, I served for a period of time in law enforcement, and I can tell you it was true then, and it's still true now, that when a call comes in concerning a domestic abuse situation, it is the worst call that police ever want to respond to. Because emotions are already raging, anger is already at its peak, things have likely already been thrown, people may have already been injured, and they're walking into situations where people are ventilating their anger in complete exasperation. Scripture warns against this. An angry man stirs up dissension, and a hot-tempered one commits many sins. Did you know that the writer of Proverbs also said, in Proverbs 22, he said, do not make friends with a hot-tempered man. Do not associate with someone who is easily angered, or you may learn his ways and get yourself ensnared. Too often we regret what was done or said when anger is ventilated improperly, and it cannot be repaired. 
Now, before we leave the text and I close, I want to give you two more principles that were very obvious from the text. And you'll recall from reading them, fifth principle is this, we often ventilate our anger on an innocent party. What did Jonathan do to deserve that emotional, angry outburst? Nothing. He simply showed up for dinner. We often ventilate our anger toward an innocent party. And lastly, anger often generates a reciprocal response. I, I don't know if you caught that, so let me just read that one verse again. Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger, for he was grieved for David. You see, anger ventilated improperly is twisted and turned on an innocent party. It's extremely difficult not to respond in like fashion. Now, I will not take the time, but again, I would implore you to take some time. If you are battling with anger, would you go to Galatians chapter 5, and read verses 16 to 26, because it talks about the necessity for us to draw upon the work of the Spirit of God in us to change and to control emotion. And at the end of that passage is the familiar reference to the contrast that says, when you allow God's Spirit to be at work, then you will reap the fruit of the work of the Spirit of God in your life. That's evidence that your life is under the control of the Spirit instead of under the influence of someone else. It helps us to understand that we do not have to react to someone else's anger, but we need to make choices how we are going to act. So in closing, I'm going to give you four recommendations from a professional counselor by the name of H. Norman Wright. Four things that he says that we should consider in responding to anger. Number one, he says, repress it. That's what option that you have. One option that you must be aware of is you can repress it. You can just turn it inside, and you can continue to be an angry person. That's your choice. You can suppress it. Number two, you can push it so far down and deep inside of you and hide it from other people, but eventually it will come out. There are people that I have met who have suppressed anger for years and years and years, internalizing it, deliberately hiding it from others until something happens that they blow up and no longer can clam up. You can repress it. You can suppress it. Thirdly, you can express it. 
You can be responsible or irresponsible in how you respond to anger if you're addicted to it. And fourthly, he suggests, and I think this is great for us to close with, you can confess it. If there is an addiction to anger, if there is something that you just are having a difficult time releasing, it is most likely a sin issue that you are hanging on to that you are not ready to let go of because of whatever the reason. Too difficult to talk about. You're ashamed of it. You just think you can continue to hide it. You think it has no impact upon you. It does. And God says, if the Spirit of God reveals that to you, then be courageous and confess that sin and draw upon, Galatians 5, the work of the Spirit to help you change the way you express. Repress it, suppress it, express it, or confess it. Five choices that we have in how we can not react to anger, but we can intentionally choose what is the best response for us. These are difficult days in which we live. There are no shortage of things to be angry about, are there? We don't have to look far. We don't have to wait long. Okay? I was feeling a little bit angry this morning at that woman who was about six feet from my bumper going 65 miles an hour on Route 30 on my way here driving her big Mercedes SUV. And I thought, here I am. I'm going to preach on anger this morning, and this woman is going to ride my bumper the whole way there, most likely sent by a demon <laughs> to enrage me. You ever feel like that? Hey, I stand up here this morning as a man who wrestles with the same emotions that every single one of us do. It's nothing for us to be ashamed of, but it is something that we need to address and deal with in our life before it does irreparable damage. Father God, thank you for the way in which you reveal things to us in the pages of Scripture, in the stories of real people who struggle with real issues that we can identify with. We can't just excuse them. We can't just say, well, that's the way I am. Because it may very well be that that's not the way God wants us to be. And so, Father, that's where we implore you to help us by the truth of your word, by the power of your spirit, by the love of a friend who can help uncover and unravel those layers of pain that might be generating anger. May we do so, we pray, for our good but more so for your glory. And we ask this in the bold name of Jesus Christ and all of God's people said, 